Hello, welcome to the Dentist Profit Playbook podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Harry Singh, helping you grow your facial dentist business. Looking forward um, to this episode with David Sines from the JCCP. So welcome, David. Uh, hello, everybody. Lovely to be with you. Uh, thank you for your time. I know you have a very busy time. We had a bit of a um, struggle to get our timings aligned, uh, so we were both free. Um, I did send a um, feedback or list of questions that my audience will want to listen. It was the most um, welcomed podcast guests and most um, feedback given. So we've got our questions ready for you, David. Thanks, you. No problem. So um, obviously you're heading um, the JCCP. So for our listeners that have been... um, living under a cave for the last 10 years. I don't know what JCCP is. If you can explain mm. what it is and how it came about in terms of formation, please. Yeah, that's a very, very good, sensible question to start with, Harry. Thank you. Well, look, the JCCP, it's the Joint Council for Cosmetic Practitioners. It came about, actually, in very early 2016. The reason it came about was I had just completed a major review of education and training standards in the non-surgical cosmetic sector on behalf of Health Education England. Yeah. Health Education England was invited by the Chief Medical Officer, Sir Bruce Keogh at the time, to undertake that review. So there was a very logical sequence. Once you set standards, yeah. government wasn't at that stage prepared to put them into place or enact them from statutory enforcement perspective, so it invited the me to form a voluntary council to test those standards in practice. Okay. So I formed with colleagues a joint council, meaning joint, to represent the different professions. And also there was a requirement for us to test some of the standards in the beauty industry for those less invasive procedures. Yeah. So... We formed the council, it became a charity and was formally approved by the Professional Standards Authority in April 2018, Harry. So it came into place, three aims really, to take the standards that Health Education England had prepared, to enhance them, to include greater focus on practice, to test their feasibility and also to continue to write standards and to influence government policy. No, perfect. Very succinct. Um, when you were setting up the JCCP, what was the feedback from professional organisations such as the GDC, GMC, NMC, and uh, non-medical ones as well? Well, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? And by the way, from the professional regulators incredibly supportive, Harry. Um, I had been working with them during my time at HEE, so it was an ongoing journey. So General Dental Council, good example, I would have had very early meetings with the standards team at the GDC, face-to-face meetings um, with the standards team, particularly Patrick Kavanagh, and indeed ditto with General Medical Council, Nursing with Referee Council, Healthcare Professions Council, and the General Pharmaceutical Council. So those were they were very aligned. And in fact, I have signed memoranda of understanding between the JCCP, Harry, and those organisations 
which are still absolutely current. So we work together with the aim of advising on best practice within the code of practice that you have, of course, as professionals, but then identifying how that needs to be adapted for aesthetic practice. Beauty industry, very divided, as you might imagine, particularly when we actually set a restriction on, in our opinion, who could and should perform injectable procedures like botulinum toxin injections and, of course, dermal fillers. We made it very clear, no, that was not appropriate for non-healthcare professionals. Yeah. So that led to a division, as you would expect. However, we'll hear in a moment, there's been a significant move amongst many beauty therapists to recognise they actually have a very strong place in the sector without having to use or apply injectables. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was interesting you mentioned um, GDC because I remember in non-surgical aesthetics were being offered by dentists, the GDC weren't really too interested and said it's not act, the act of dentistry and they weren't really... Um, positive or forthcoming in encouraging dentists to undertake these services. Yes. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I have to say from day one with the General Dental Council, I had nothing but positive engagement and encouragement. Um, yeah. I think the GDC were very interested in looking at the parameters surrounding practice. But as you know, Harry, um, the GDC doesn't set doesn't actually set or prescribe a scope of practice. No. And I think for those reasons, all dental practitioners, as indeed all healthcare practitioners, have to work within their generic code of practice. So it's quite useful, I think, for the GDC and other regulators to have an opportunity to seek advice and support from their own members or their own registrants and from organisations like ourselves that put the spotlight on how one has to adapt policy sometimes and yeah. actually frame the standards. So the code, of course, is always adhered to, but we're also able to provide that additionality of fitness for purpose in aesthetic practice. Yeah, no, yeah definitely. Um, so what happens, I, I remember being a dinosaur but, um, in the industry, <laughs> knew about the Bruce Keogh report, what happened to those recommendations? Did anything come along from that? Yes. Yeah, they did, and it's been a slow burn. Because you will probably realise, Harry and colleagues, that with non-surgical cosmetic interventions, we've also, in parallel, got another track, which of course are cosmetic surgical interventions. Okay. And that's the one, I guess, you would expect to have taken the greatest impetus for change because yeah. of patient safety. I mean, we hear it every day now with obviously um, members of the public going off to Turkey for cheaper and much more fast and provided cosmetic procedures. Yeah. But now the parallel development, I think, is becoming very, very clear. So what, what did change? Well, one, government was incredibly keen to listen. And they, I think there were three things. One, over the last four years, the government has collected anecdotal and evidence-based practice examples to inform the fact that there are significant harms to be actually um, received and, and actually felt by members of the public yes. if 
procedures are not provided to the highest standard under aesthetic, um, sorry, under so under very, well, I'm going to use the words that we have in the Act now, in terms of hygiene and infection control health protection standards. Okay, yeah. And I think that's number one. So that has driven the government to realise there is a threshold with, that we now must meet to demonstrate patient safety and safeguarding. Secondly, there's been great support, Harry, from across the industry now for this. Yes. That wasn't there five years ago. And I think that's recognised everybody's will to push together to get something done. And finally, it's doable. In other words, it's not in the too difficult to do box. Yeah. We know we have standards. We know they can be applied. And we know that many of you are applying them. So those things have shifted. And we'll come on in a moment, I'm sure, to the question. Where we are now demonstrates the evidence that the government has really listened. And we're now going to have a scheme of regulation that will pick up all of the issues that we were discussing in the mid um, mid 2010s, etc., yeah. that are now going to become enforceable in law. Thank you, David. Yeah, you must have been reading my notes, David, because my next question is, where, <laughs> are, we, where are we now? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And one does lead to the other. It's an organic process, isn't it? It's an iterative process. So where we are, the conversation we've just had led us all by... 2021, we'd, as a JCCP, produced what we called a 10-point plan for safer regulation. Okay. And that meant important things in that. One was we need safe products. We need products that then are actually used and administered by safe and competent practitioners okay. who are trained to a national, a nationally agreed standard of practice proficiency. We also need robust indemnity insurance. Yes. Complaints procedures, redress schemes. And we need standards in all the premises that people administer the procedures. Now, they all sound very simple, but you put all those together, there's quite a lot there. Then you add to that, we need to have effective and safe advertising of services that don't mislead the public. And we also need real controls on certain non-medicines that are used in the industry. And dermal fillers are not medicines, they're devices. Yes. So we needed to really think about what we could put in, in place to safeguard the manufacture, distribution and administration of fillers. All that together was in the 10-point plan. We, we put that to government and government took that on board. And here we go. In the middle of 2021, Harry, and I'll be brief, yeah. <laughs> we had the opportunity to present to members of parliament a real case for regulation in the non-surgical sector based on those 10 points in our plan and the evidence we've collected together over the years with you and many other colleagues. And we successfully campaigned to have a particular section, and I've come back to that, section 160 it's called, within the new Health and Care Act. 
Okay. So by April 2022, Harry, we had achieved our aim and the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care had published Section 160 in the Health and Care Act, which stated he or she, it was a he then, um, he would be required by government to consult on the nature and scope of a new licensing procedure for England. And remember, this is for England only, Harry. Yeah, yeah. But that is where it ended up. So we now have Section 160, which states that the, the Secretary of State should now consult on the need for two licences, Harry. Okay. One for the premises from which procedures are actually um, administered. Yes. And that's non-transferable, Harry. Okay. In other words, each, each, each set of premises would need a separate licence, and it would be very similar to the CQC standards, as you would expect for premises, which many of your colleagues are familiar with. Yeah. And here's the new one, well, both new. There would be a requirement for practitioners who actually performed procedures that would be agreed for inclusion in the licence to have a practitioner licence to legally practice. Okay. And those two licences would together form the focus of legal practice. And the GDC or the GMC, NMC, would also accept those licenses as evidence of your legal compliance to practice in accordance with your code of practice. Okay. So if you fail to have a license, Harry, yeah. you would be automatically referred to, to a fitness to practice panel in within your registered your reg, professional regulatory body. We don't want that to happen. <laughs> no. So you kind of get the idea. It's a legal threshold. You have to have a license. Okay, then dentist. So where's your license? If you haven't got one or you fail to get one and you're practicing these procedures, then you're acting illegally. Therefore, your code comes into play. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, and I've heard you speak um, at various... Um, events. I think I've just lost you, David.